Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Hi friends, welcome to episode 45 of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I don't know how we're quote-unquote only on episode 45 since I'm pretty sure I've been doing this podcast for three years. <laughs> like, I'm not even joking. How are we only on episode 45? I guess it's because back in the day I used to do one podcast every two weeks, and I remember I took a big break the first summer I was doing it without telling anyone. <laughs> and then I also took an even bigger break to go on maternity leave and have a really cute baby named Cecil. So I guess that's how we're only on episode 45. But here we are. We made it. As you may recall, I told you a couple episodes ago that yes, I'm going to be doing weekly episodes now. I have heard your demands. I have seen the change.org petition with over 10 billion signatures. But in order to do weekly episodes, I'm doing one interview episode per month because I, can, I can't possibly write four full-on episodes about four different criminal broads per month. I am no superwoman. So here's our a monthly interview episode. And I'm excited about the potential here because I feel like this gives us an opportunity to step back, look at the broader true crime picture, ask some different questions, cock our heads like a curious little bird eyeing a crumb and say, hmm, how do I feel about that? So today I am bringing on a woman who, given the work she does, I would say is pretty much a true crime expert. Like she has a bird's eye view of the genre and has talked to people from uh, who are involved in true crime in every which way, from survivors to advocates to detectives to people who think their dad was a really famous murderer, and so on and so forth. We're going to hear from Rebecca Sebastian, who hosts the podcast Dialogue. And I have been on her podcast twice now, and I really love going on her podcast because it's like a safe space for me to just talk about all my feelings around this weird genre. And so I thought it was high time I returned the favor and brought her on my podcast. You might recognize, well, you probably don't, but <laughs> the name of this title, Crime Obsessed Broad, I started back in the day when I interviewed Rachel Monroe, author of Savage Appetites. So yeah, I think every now and then I'm going to do a crime-obsessed broad interview because I like to have categories for things. I love a good subtitle. I love a good series within a series. I like to keep things organized. Um, also, yesterday my book came out, Confident Women, colon, Swindlers, Grifters, and Shapeshifters of the Feminine Persuasion. So you know the drill. Go to your favorite local bookstore's website, order it. If they don't have it, leave them a very angry review on Yelp. I hope you know I'm kidding. I hope you. I would never tell you to leave an angry review on Yelp for a local bookstore. Anything else is fair game, just not your local bookstore. Um, so yeah, order my book, whatever. Listen to the last podcast episode, which has a story from my book in it. And let's get into the conversation with Rebecca Sebastian. Let's hear what she has to say about what she's learned from hosting a podcast where she talks to basically everyone in true crime today.
started. Um, Rebecca, welcome to Criminal Broads. It's a pleasure to have you on. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I have been on your podcast dialogue twice, so I still sort of feel like you're about to interview me. So I need to make sure that I don't just sit back and wait for you to ask me interesting things about my life. Very much am not going to. I am so excited to just show up here, like prepared to answer. It's so much fun to be on the other side of the interview, I have to tell you. Good. Yeah, that must be a relief (laughs) just to show up and talk about yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I love it. So um, can you introduce yourself to my listeners and tell us a little bit about your podcast and what you're trying to do with it? Yeah, sure. So I started my podcast, Dialogue, a true crime conversation in August of 2019. And it was on the heels, actually, of uh, my trivia show. So that my first true crime endeavor, I guess, was this show called Yellow Tape, and it still exists. It's a it was an in-person true crime trivia show, which you have been to in New York City. And, um, and that was your typical sort of pub trivia format, five rounds, question and answers, people played in teams, and it was just a lot of fun and sort of a place, an outlet to put all this crazy true crime intel that so many of us accumulate over the years. And we also raised money for the Innocence Project. And so it was this interesting intersection of like doing good, but loving true crime and finding like a safe space for both of those things to coexist. And what I noticed happening in the audiences was people wanted to talk about some of the cases and they wanted to get into some of the more intricacies or complexities of these cases that we were talking about or doing trivia around. But the format of Yellow Tape didn't always allow for it, right? We were limited to this under an hour. I was on stage. People were at their tables. So I didn't always know how to integrate it. And that's when I was like oh God, do I have to start a true crime podcast? Because like the world doesn't need another. And yet I I landed on yes, it does because I didn't see one like the one in my mind. So dialogue kind of picks up where yellow tape left off, which is answering the why of true crime and kind of going into the genre itself, not so much cases. So Um, So I formatted it around an interview style, which I didn't really see happening at the time in true crime podcasting. So dialogue is spelled D-I-E-A-L-O-G-U-E, and it's a conversation with usually one other guest, sometimes a couple guests, and they're either a creator in the space, they're either a field expert, criminal justice person, and we talk about their career and also their perspective on the genre, where it's going, what's changed. And the conversations, because my guests are so different and unique each week, the conversations really vary too, though there's definitely like a thematic through line. But um, but yeah, it's a place to explore this obsession we all seem to have. Yeah. And I, I really do think you filled a gap in the market, so to speak. I still haven't seen other podcasts like it. Um, and I think you're right in identifying this urge to talk. And it's like, it's not that we all want to go over beat by beat what happened in the Ted Bundy case so much as we want to like gather especially women like we want to gather and just like unpack it yes and process it even all these years later I I think you're hitting on it exactly I always sometimes I always sometimes which one is it Rebecca (laughs) I often (laughs) think of true crime and the conversations we're having as the vehicle, like true crime is the vehicle that we're using to talk about things that I think are sometimes really hard to confront, like 
trauma and racism, right? O.J. Simpson's trial wasn't just about the murder at all. Like if, and, it, and based on everybody's answer to where they were when they heard that verdict, I mean, it, it clearly is about so much more. Like wealth and celebrity and race and power and all of those things. So to me, true crime just gives us a way to talk about those subjects. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I sometimes get a little bit judgy about people who completely dismiss true crime as a salacious genre, although you and I both know it can be very salacious. But it's yeah. like, without the, we do use these huge, huge cases as lenses on so many other things. And like, um, how do I say this? Because I'm not happy that like OJ happened or Jack the Ripper or Bundy. But if you took those, if if we weren't allowed to talk about those, we would be deprived of a lot of conversation, I guess. And like, I don't know, they've become part of history. Yep. They become metaphors for like, what is America? Like, yep. how does society view women? And um, yeah, I guess I'm just repeating what you said, what you just said, but the conversations around these, especially these really famous cases, do feel like they're always about so much more than who done it. Absolutely. And maybe other people find other vehicles to do that. Mm -hmm. they, pro they probably do. We probably see sure. that like, in literature or, or politics. Yeah. Yeah. For people who like true crime and for me, it was a way for me to kind of reconcile my interest with it. And it was a curiosity thing. For me, it just didn't end with the trial or the verdict, or if it was a cold case, who did it? It was sort of like, this is telling us more if we are paying attention and listening. And does mm -hmm. anybody else think that? Because I want to talk about it. And so it turns out lots of other people are thinking like that. <laughs> exactly. And I love talking to them. Exactly. So I want to ask you on this episode some superlatives because you, oh. you have, if, if listeners, if you haven't checked out Rebecca's podcast yet, like she's talked to everyone in the true crime space. So... I want to hear your most and least and things like that. Um, but before. So fun. <laughs> yeah. We're back in high school. But I know. It's like the yearbook of dialogue. <laughs> I, in middle school, um, some my class tried to nominate me like most like joker or like willing to take a dare or something funny. Oh. Um, no. My mom said I couldn't. <laughs> and she made them tell me. She made them. <laughs> she made me be most literary. <laughs> No, stop. You had to recant the nomination. Yes. I had switch. to be most literary, which is, in retrospect, it's very, like, classy. On brand. But yes. Yeah. I was like, I want to be the joker, mom. I want to be the silly one. That is, you really are both, which is what's so amazing. It's like, you. you're really funny. Wow. I mean, you're obviously literary and very smart, but I'm always um, pleasantly surprised at also how witty you are. Rebecca. So you were both right. Who's interviewing who here? Who's complimenting <laughs> no, who? I just speak the truth, Tori. I just speak the truth. Thank you. Okay. So, oh, but what I wanted to say before we get into superlatives is I was thinking this morning about, I feel like you and I have very similar feelings about true crime. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but, and here's how I would summarize it. <laughs> you oh, tell good. me if I'm, if I'm off. I feel like we both are less interested in the cases than in the bigger conversation like we were just talking about we both grapple with that and wonder if it's okay and at the same time we're both kind of getting sick of <laughs> grappling with uh why do we talk about true crime yes okay you're hitting you're hitting it right on the head it can like delve into like navel gazing territory yeah, yeah. which i'm um, 
I'm really over it. And, and this mm-hmm. will probably, you know, come out over the course of our conversation. But in the year and a half I've been doing dialogue, I've sort of redirected the vision a little bit. Mm. Like the intent is still the same, but there's a little less but why yeah. aspect. And that feels really good, actually. It feels good. I, I, I mentioned it on my other podcast, Red Flags, but when you interviewed Rebecca Lavoie from Crime Writers On and you kind of asked her, like, should we all stop asking why we're into this? And she said, yes, we're into it because it's interesting, period. Yeah. That was so yeah. liberating for me to hear because I get asked that question a lot. And it's like, I, I'm sure you and I both have our answers. Well, we're into it because blah, 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 psychology. Yep. But at the end of the day, it's like humans have always been interested in this. Yeah. Can we move on and like talk about other things? Yeah, let's stop acting like this is so new. Right. To, to, it, it's not. And I think Rebecca Lavoie's response being so quick and so definitive, like she she was very sure for herself about that, that it, it kind of really gave me the permission that I think I'd been moving towards on my own, which is why I framed the question that way. I was like, we're good, right? We don't have to keep, <laughs> in a way, because it feels like justification. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, no, we can just be interested and we can just ask the question. Like I can just ask my guests the very specific questions, like from their expertise and their perspective yeah. about a case or a person or a true crime element. But I don't need to be like, so why is it though? Right. Because like the truth is we're both here giving an hour of our time to talk about it. Like, cause it's interesting. It's interesting. And we're interested. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And of course that doesn't mean like we can be assholes about it or whatever, but, no. it, but we don't have to continue picking at that scab of like, but why is it interesting? Because it's interesting because humans like stories. And humans are interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you agree with my analysis of us both because I was thinking about that. I was washing my hair. Good. Okay. (laughs) So let's start with our superlatives. Okay. I would like to know, first and foremost, the most shocking thing a guest has ever said on your podcast. And you can define shocking how you like. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And I hope my answer doesn't disappoint. You know, shocking in terms of like juicy tea, there have been some moments. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like people share very, um, I would, I would probably put some of those moments more in like a vulnerable emotional moment, but in terms of shocking. Okay. So here's my answer. My answer is continual or repeated stories of the justice system failing. And, and to be really honest with you, it was shocking to me in the first, like, 50 episodes and now I'm like up to 80 and I'm like when's the part where you got let down you know by the first responding officer or the person who didn't believe you or and this is not an anti-law enforcement statement I just want to make that clear because I've had a lot of law enforcement guests on um, and we grapple with that's one of the subjects in true crime that I think is really interesting that 2020 sure brought to the forefront right in terms of police reform and defunding the police but um yeah our system is a great one. And I think in comparison to many, it really works a lot of the time, but it's not perfect. And we're not even promised a perfect system. We're promised like a fair trial, but sometimes like, but way before the trial, things break down or they were broken. And, um, 
it's shocking me less and less because I'm hearing it so often. But in the beginning, I would just, I mean, there was a naivete, like, really? Are you serious that happened? And now I'm just like, when's the part coming? You know? And yeah. that makes me sad. Yeah, I, I feel that. I've been getting more into that in some of my research, like researching like the problems with how we have so many plea deals as a society. I mean, I know there are, our, our system is broken in so many different ways, but I keep stumbling across things too, where I'm like, oh, and I feel like for me, <laughs> my fear of, well, I don't have like a, a fear of appearing in the courtroom per se, but like <laughs> these days, like the thought of getting tangled up in our criminal justice system makes me feel so oh scared because I don't, yeah. because of the system, not because like, yeah, I'm afraid a fellow prisoner might punch me. You know, it's no, 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 no. I would say one of my newer fears that I didn't know I had was being on a jury trial. Like give me a bench trial any day of the week. Like juries terrify me because they're you and me and us. And I know a lot about true crime and I know a little about the criminal justice system and I don't feel prepared to take that responsibility. And I don't think most of our juries are. To be honest, a jury trial really, really scares me because of the ways both sides of a trial in terms of attorneys can manipulate facts because it's really hard to filter out emotion and humanity and all these other things you're not supposed to include in your decision. It's hard for me. It's easier for some people. I'm a very empathetic person. I don't know how to sort through all that and make an unbiased decision. So, so yeah, that scares me yeah. too. Not like I'm doing anything that might land me in a <laughs> exactly. But now I'm extra not doing anything. I'm oh yeah, totally. All rule, my taxes. Rule follower here. <laughs> okay, well, let, you brought up emotion, so I wanted to ask you that. What about um, the most or one of the most emotional oh. moments? I know you've talked to a lot of survivors, so I imagine you have a lot. But is there one very emotional moment that stands out to you? Yeah, there's several, um, but uh, I'm going to have to kind of think of, I might name two, just one is really recent and hasn't even aired yet, but I'm in the middle of recording Survivor Series, a series on Survivor Stories. Um, so two have aired actually, and two more are coming. And one interview was just yesterday and this woman's son was kidnapped from her. She was a young teenage mother, poor black in the South in 1978. And, um, I knew her story. Obviously, I invited her on. But hearing her just walk through the details from her memory um, was really emotional. And I think missing persons cases in general are very emotional. I've talked to several people who've been on who have a missing loved one. And it's the lack of definitive answer. You know, I mean... I don't know what's worse, and I don't want to say because I haven't experienced either in terms of a murder or, or an unsolved missing person, but they are both different kinds of tragic and awful. But the not knowing is is agony, yeah. So that was really emotional. Um, that episode is actually coming out in two weeks. Her name is Donna Green. She's an amazing advocate for other families of missing people now. Yeah, big time. Just uh, a champion. Um but I interviewed a an exoneree named Jeff Deskovic, and he was so impressive to me. He told his story just so straightforward. He became a lawyer while yes. in prison. I love that. He, he's incredible, and he's out just like Donna fighting for other people who are wrongly incarcerated now. But um, 
he told his story so, so well. He's such a great communicator, but so, I don't know. It's just, he took me through the story and it was staggering, but not emotional. But he got, but he broke at the end of our, it was two-parter. And um, I, I, I didn't expect it because we'd spoken for so long and he'd been so composed. And when he broke, I mean, it doesn't take a lot for me to, to cry. And I'm just like, oh, Rebecca, like, what do we do here? Because you want to be empathetic and you want to show him you're, I'm with you. But I, I didn't want to dissolve either. Um, but he broke and, and it was beautiful and it was so uh, human. And Did he, what, what was the detail that he cracked on? Can you tell us? Yeah. So at the end of my show, which you mm-hmm. know, I ask everybody what's keeping them mm-hmm. up at night. And um, he just got really quiet and he said, you know, every now and then it doesn't happen often. I can hear him Mm -hmm. saying it, but I think about what happened. And I think about me as a young man in that situation. (gasps) And his voice cracked. He said, and that can keep me up. And because he's so busy, he keeps himself so busy Mm -hmm. working, working, working towards justice for other people. And rebuilding his life. And it takes so much work. So many things we take for granted, right? Mm, Yeah. And uh, he just has moments. Of course he does, right? In the stillness and the quiet at night. Where he replays what happened to him. And, oh boy, I was glad we were done because I was done. Oh, that's so hard. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is, I feel like we're not going to get to all my questions. Because I just want to talk to you about (laughs) so many things. But I want to talk to you really quickly about... Kathy Kleiner, because we both interviewed her. So Kathy Kleiner survived Ted Bundy. We did an episode on her in Criminal Broads. Rebecca has interviewed her. I've written about her. I also brought her on Red Flags. Now that I say it out loud, it's like, Tori, calm down. (laughs) Um, We're a little obsessed obsessed with her. She, I'll link to all this in the show notes, but she's incredible. She was a sorority girl and and she survived an attack by him. Anyway, I wanted to ask you how your interview with her was because of all the interviews I've done, um, I remember specifically of, of a very emotional moment with her. Like emotional mm. for me. The whole thing is emotional for her. But did you have, were there any surprises when you talked to her? Yeah, there really were. And and she definitely is like a, a top five in mm-hmm. terms of emotional yeah. interviews. But she also is such an interesting, complex human, mm-hmm. like we all are, because she's so upbeat <gasps> yeah. and, and, and charming hilarious. and funny. Yeah. that and, and so half the time she's talking, I'm just like charmed. Mm-hmm. And then the other half, she's talking about this unbelievable, horrific night that, you know, is hard to imagine being real. But I think what surprised me about my interview with Kathy was this to me, the interesting through line in her story is that she's been surviving since she was a little mm-hmm. girl, right? She had a childhood illness. She lost a parent really mm-hmm. young. This attack happened. And then she got breast mm-hmm. cancer, you know, later in her adult life. So to me, she's just been on this like surviving journey. So she's like one of these warrior yes. women. And let's not forget that she got robbed at gunpoint as a bank teller, like what, a year after oh, right. the Ted Bundy attack? Right. Just a small detail, robbed by a strange man. Yeah, Yeah, I remember saying to her, you know, any one of these things in a person's story is almost enough for like a memoir. (laughs) Like the fact that you've had all of them is just unbelievable. But um, I think there was this sad feeling to me looking in and hearing her story. I heard a woman who felt unseen a lot of the time and 
you know, that happened in childhood when she was sick and she was isolated from her friends and she literally would watch them play from the window of her home and she couldn't join. And what happened post Bundy was a disconnect from her sorority because it wasn't good for the brand of the sorority. It was like she was sort of bad press. And that broke my heart that in addition to surviving that and all of that trauma, the bonds that she had were severed. Um, So that was really unexpectedly sad. Yeah, I think there's a weird stigma for people who survive horrific things sometimes. Like, yeah. There's a con artist in my book who says she was in the World Trade Center on 9-11. So I was looking into the 9-11 survivor community, and they felt unseen, too. And as you're talking to me, it's like, oh, this is a thing. When horrible things happen um, and people die, the mourning is a little bit more straightforward because it's like funeral. Like, I mean, I don't want to sound callous, but it's just more straightforward. When people survive. Yes then there are reminders of the horrible thing. And a lot of us don't want to deal with that. And we don't know what to say, right? I say. mean, we barely know what to say when someone passes. Right. Like, But we've got some standard right. phrasing. I'm sorry for your loss. That we can, yeah, my condolences. I'm thinking of you. I can't imagine. But when someone survives and they're physically in front of you, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You, Yeah, you don't want to confront what happened. You don't know how. So there's, there's, those are like the generous reasons that you wouldn't want to talk to someone more selfishly. It's really uncomfortable and a reminder and maybe triggering for you. So yeah, I think, I think you're, you're touching on something kind of that goes back to what we were talking about with missing persons cases, you know, with the murder, there might be a trial and some closure, quote unquote, but there's like, it's like a big gray unknown in terms of survivors, like how to be. And I was shocked that nobody, interviewed her for like I think decades yeah uh you were the first person she talked to for a written piece and she trusted you and liked your work which didn't surprise me at all and I loved that I was so scared when she told me she liked the piece I wrote that was like one of the happiest moments in my professional life because I mean didn't think she would dislike it but you never know and um you never know someone might just be neutral about it but for her to, yeah. I know. Well, it was a it was a great piece, and I linked to it in my show okay. notes because um, mm-hmm. I loved it too. But yeah, when when twenty twenty or whatever it was finally reached out to her and asked if she wanted to share her story, she was like, uh, "Yeah, I would love to. Where have <laughs> yeah, you been?" Exactly. And I'm like, "Well, that's surprising because we think of the press like barreling down people's door to get stories." Um, but I think it speaks to that. E, I don't know how to do mm-hmm. this with with this tenuous surviving situation. So yeah, Kathy Kleiner was a. That was a doozy. Um, That one is part of, she was the first one in the Survivor series. It was a great interview. Yeah, she's incredible. Okay, let's go to our next superlative. I wanted to know the time when you personally felt the most seen. So like, that could be the Rebecca Lavoie anecdote where she gave us all permission to stop Mm. being so navel-gazing about our obsession. But yeah, was there a time someone said something that blew your mind and made you feel like liberated or understood in some way? Yes, uh, many mm-hmm. times. I, I, There's rarely an interview where I don't have some personal unexpected connection mm. to what was being said that just feels like, wow, that encouraged me or I didn't expect to relate to this person and here I am. But I think my answer to that question would be, again, a moment in Rebecca Lavoie's interview. <laughs> So there was the 
liberation from the big why. Yeah, yeah. Like that was so freeing. But before we even got into true crime, we were talking about COVID and work. And again, she just kind of definitively confidently, because that's the kind of communicator and person she is, I think, whereas I'm a little more like slow to be that definitive because I don't like trust myself or I'm still working something out. She, I guess, had worked through this, but she's a, in a, a supervising position. She's the director of audience engagement, I think, for New Hampshire Public Radio. So like a good job, big job, has a team. And she was just talking about how she's managing things during COVID and that her employees and her team members' mental health was just first priority. And I was in a work situation that was so toxic and so um, not mindful of the state of the world. And I knew it was taking a toll on me, but I didn't realize how much till she was saying that. And I realized I didn't have that in a superior, someone like looking out for me and my husband had survived COVID and it was a very scary time. And I didn't take time off from work, like, cause I didn't think I could. So when she was talking about, basically our meetings consist of me checking in with my team saying, are you okay? And one thing she said that I want to put on a t-shirt, except it would kind of have a double meaning, so I won't. It said, flat Flat is the new up. And then I thought about me wearing it. I'm like, okay, I won't put that on a t-shirt. Maybe a, maybe like a sticker. Um, meaning, like, let's just maintain status quo. Like, let's not go under. Let's not go bankrupt. Let's keep things operational. But we're not setting new goals. We're not launching new initiatives. We are just maintaining And that is the goal until this is over. And I was just floored. And it was before we got into our whole crime conversation. So to be honest, I was already kind of nervous about interviewing her. Then I was having a really emotional reaction to that. Then we got into a really great conversation about crime, but a lot was happening internally for me. And I felt very heard without saying anything and validated. And uh, it actually prompted like life changes for me. So that was a big one. I was going to ask, I know you did have a recent, I don't know if, I can say, but you, you can, you recently left a job. Yeah. Did, did, is this because Rebecca Lavoie made you feel seen? <laughs> I, I, I mean, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's amazing. No, I, I was moving towards that decision and waiting right. for the right time. Right. And the right time had some very specific goals attached to it. Mm-hmm. And this was premature. This was in advance of that. Mm. So I'm not going to say it was like completely impetuous. Right. Is that the right word? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Um, but it was a little spontaneous. It was a little sooner than expected. Yeah. And it was it was a nudge. It was a big, compassionate nudge. And she knows that. Like, because I, oh. I, I tweeted, like, I'm in the freelance market, you know, taking gigs. And she was like, wait, what? Whoa. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, it happened a few weeks after her interview. Right. Oh, I love that. That's yeah. see, like, as we were talking about earlier, uh, the true crime conversation always involves other things. And this is Absolutely. a really big example of that. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you got out of that situation. And I think Thank sometimes, you. sometimes jumping before we're ready is like the best way to do it, I think. You know? Let's hope. Yeah. It was scary. I mean, I yeah. don't take it lightly. And I know yeah. people lost jobs, um, yeah. you know, that didn't want to leave their jobs. So I recognize this was a, a real risk. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you need a social media manager, a copywriter <laughs> for hire. <laughs> no one makes a better logo than Rebecca. Oh, so thanks. hire her. <laughs> Unless that's what you don't want to be doing anymore, in which case. No, no, I'm doing okay. it. Okay, okay, hire her.
episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What about conspiracy theories? Have you heard any crazy ones on your podcast other than ones I've told you? You can't you can't use me as an example. <laughs> yeah, I won't I won't cheat and and use yours. Um I just heard one that I have never heard before. Ooh. And you'll love it because it's historical. It's not like uh, yes. true crime relate like specific. Okay. Uh it hasn't even aired yet. So this is like a pre-release scoop. But um the the people telling it to me, by the way, I don't want to defame them. It's not their theory. It's yeah. their their history podcasters and they know about this and you might actually you might know this I'd never heard it but I heard they told me that the Titanic (gasps) crash was intentional (laughs) (laughs) that it was all like meant to happen and I said why by who this is the best part JP Morgan (laughs) (laughs) um I'm not not interested in finding out more (laughs) same I feel like uh, so conspiracy theories have tried to chip away at everything we hold to be true. So it's yep. like, what's left? The Titanic, of course. Exactly. Like, like where else why is not there question to that? go? Yeah. yeah. I've never heard that one. I've never heard it either. And it was so not what we were talking about. It was such a throwaway <laughs> sideline thing they said that I was like, okay, well, you're going to have to come back and we're going to have to unpack that entirely another time. Yeah. You can't just walk by me, say that, and then keep no. flouncing away. Like, I'm no. not. Like, I will throw a lasso around you and yes. drag you back. I'm sorry, but. I will <laughs> never watch Titanic the same way again. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So, who knows? But that that was pretty crazy. I had a guest on that talked about the deep state. Um, mm. And uh, that one, that was hard for me. Like, I. Yeah. Like, the, QAnon deep no no I talked we talk a lot about QAnon on on um dialogue and I've had cult experts on that are like Mm. it is a cult like do not be fooled okay even though there's not one central leader because we don't know who Q quote-unquote is um no this was more in terms of um oh it's complicated JFK no Henry Henry Lee Lucas so it's the prosecutor uh Vic Fizel who was in The Confession Killer on Netflix. And he felt that there was, like, government conspiracies to silence him. Okay, well, as someone who is currently working more on my John Wayne Gacy corruption theory, Uh uh, more to come, I'm not that shocked to hear that. I mean, I don't know what really happened, but the idea that in some of these famous cases, there's, there are powerful authorities who have a vested interest in things turning out a certain way is not, Mm -hmm. that doesn't sound crazy to me. Yeah, no, I, I bought it. And, um, he was an amazing guest is an amazing person. He's like a yogi. Now he makes coffee. He's really cool. (laughs) But I didn't, you know, sometimes you don't realize how controversial something is until after it airs. Then you hear from other (laughs) dissenting opinions. So it was like one of those things. But, um, but yeah, those are two that, that stood out. Yeah. Okay. Switching tonal gears. What about the most hilarious moment (laughs) you've had on your podcast? Again, other than all of our 
conversations because we just yes. laugh through the whole ones even if we're talking when I listen back to our episodes I'm like I hope I don't sound like a psychopath because I'm just <laughs> laughing I, I I know I'm like wow we we giggle um yeah. Blake I mean sue us what do you what do you yeah. want we're, we're enjoying ourselves <laughs> I I like my show because we delve into some heavy things but there's there's often levity in every interview but in terms of hilarious moments um this is funny to me so two different guests told stories of interviewing a witness. Now, neither is a law enforcement. So one is a, um, a clergy member who now works on wrongful convictions. And he like just goes door to door and like talks to everybody involved in cases from sometimes just decades ago, like on his crusade to, to clear somebody's name. So he just old school like shows up. The second one is a um, private investigator. So he does this a lot, too. But both have a moment in their books. So I had them on because of their books. And then both told the story of going to interview someone who was home watching porn at like 10 <gasps> in the morning or 11 and oh. don't turn it off like through the whole conversation. Yeah. And so what's hilarious no. to me is not just that it happened once, but twice <laughs> and that they told me like, I don't know. Wait. It's just so uncanny to me that that's like, so it makes me feel like, does this happen all the time? Right. Like, this what are the, the chances like of this random clergy member of New Jersey having that experience and this private investigator from New York City. I don't know. It was just so So these weird. are two different people watching porn and not turning it off. Correct, correct. Complete, different witnesses, two completely different, different cases, <laughs> different parts of the country. But it was like the, the common denominators were like middle of the day, yeah. living room, yeah. Oh, maybe turning no. the volume down but not the show, <laughs> and my guests having to conduct their interview simultaneously I, I don't know if I could do it I don't I don't I know I couldn't do it I <laughs> I'm sure I would leave or ask them to turn it off or something yeah. but um so I don't know if hilarious is the right word but it really made me laugh I, it, that is funny <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like the thing that tips it over into psychopathic territory <laughs> is the not turning it off like who Absolutely. cares if you're watching porn at 10 a.m thank you weird, it's weird that you didn't turn it off once you heard the doorbell go off there, there were lots of opportunities yeah. that you didn't turn it off ever. No, I I, I completely yeah. agree. Also, when a man with like a collar shows up too, it's it's just especially brazen. Like almost Ooh. like respect it. Like it's yeah. like no apologies, Not no turning the clergy. it off. Yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty funny. That's that is really funny. Um, what about the most controversial moment? Like, have you had a thing? Anyone on your podcast or a statement made that your listeners were like, whoa, I don't know about that. Yes, uh, for sure. A couple come to mind. Um, so one of my earlier interviews, like within the first couple of months of the show, I had the amazing Steve Hodell on. Mm -hmm. And he is an author, for anybody who doesn't know, he's a retired LAPD homicide detective turned author. He wrote uh, the Black Dahlia Avenger trilogy. Okay. And he believes and puts forth a ton of evidence that his dad, who was Dr. George Hodel, is the Black Dahlia killer. Like, to Ooh. him, it is a solved, not cold case. <gasps> and, I mean, wow. to be really honest, for someone as into true crime as I am, obviously I know the story of Elizabeth Short and the Black Dahlia and the details. I, I guess I just accepted his statements I, I didn't say I believe you or this is true. In fact, I just let him tell his story. And he's just really, truly an amazing man. And I really loved our conversation. So I released it without any, like, 
Here's Steve Hodel's opinion on this. I just released it because it's obvious it's his, well, well <laughs> Twitter um, and reporters from LA, like people who really follow this story and feel very much uh, in opposition to his thoughts, you know, came for me. And I was just like, okay, I was just letting a man tell a story. It's just not my job to say if it's true or not. I guess I could have come out more definitively. And I don't, I'm not even convinced they listened. I think they just saw me have him on and made assumptions. Who knows? So that was controversial and I didn't know it was. You know, there's something about, you have someone on and you kind of know it's going to be like that. I just didn't know. Oh, but that's the Black Dahlia killer is like, that's that's a line, I think, in the true crime world. You know, there's some cases where I think you're on this side or that. And, and that's one um, yeah. that I didn't realize. I didn't know either. I mean, I'm on the side of we don't know who it is. Several people have theories. We might as well listen to them. Absolutely. And I mean, he makes some reaches for some of the the circumstantial evidence to me is very circumstantial and very much of a reach, but there's a lot that lines up that could absolutely be true. Why LAPD won't pursue it is worth listening to as well, right? Like if this is all real viable information, couldn't they easily go in and prove this and put it to rest one way or another? But they're not, so I don't know. That is a question in a lot of these cases where it's like, It's hard to know for us as outsiders if things that look suspicious are suspicious. Because, you know, LAPD could have a perfectly logical reason, but they don't say it. And there there are very similar things with the Gacy case, really, the John Wayne Gacy case, where it's like cops are saying this, lawyers and, like, private citizens who are looking into it are saying this, and the cops look really suspicious. Right. But is there something that they just can't tell us that would make all the suspicions go away? Very likely or, or possible. I want to know some of your generalizations on like, or just like your big picture thoughts on true crime, because you have interviewed so many people from so many different, like, who are coming at true crime from so many different angles. Like, you've talked to a childhood friend of John Bonet Ramsey, right? Yeah. You've talked to someone who thinks the Black Dahlia killer was his dad. You've talked to cops. You've talked to detectives. You've talked to survivors. You, you know, I mean, you've talked to podcasters. So couple questions with all the knowledge that you have now after is it 80 episodes you've done something like that yeah yeah do you see some trends coming down the pipeline for true crime like how is the genre changing where do you think it's going good question so I think it's changing in uh, in a couple of ways I think it's it's elevating I think it's I learned a phrase called prestige television, which I hadn't heard, but like there's a lot of things that would qualify as true crime that are prestige television. And that's on the newer side. True crime's not new, like we said, but shows and and documentaries that are really well done, that people who would not consider themselves a true crime person are watching, like Murder on Middle Beach on HBO and, you know, so many shows. So I think it's just the standards of storytelling are changing. I think there's just like better ways of telling true crime stories available now between podcasting and documentaries. And then I think there's going to be another part 
And that's very much already happening, which is advocacy and justice. I think I think a lot of people, not everybody, not all consumers, listeners and watchers, but a lot of people have reached a point in their true crime journey, if you will, where they're like, okay, but what do I do? Now, I don't think you have to have an advocacy component to your work or even to your interest. I really don't. I think you can appreciate true crime for entertainment and for thoughtful speculation on humanity and all these things we talked about. But for those who do want that, I think there's a lot of ways now to kind of get involved. So crowdsourcing around cold cases and missing persons cases, that's really interesting to me because it's this like meshing of our online social media world and true crime and interesting things can happen from that and we're seeing it happen forensic genealogy is a trend in true crime that's going to be utilized more that we can all participate in. And I know that's a little controversial, right, to give your DNA or not, but that's helping people, nameless Jane and John Doe's, find their true identity. And that moves cases forward and gives families closure. So those are things I look at that I'm like, that's really cool that the, not the average consumer maybe, but the extra consumer, the consumer who's really spent a lot of years listening to podcasts is now even aware of those things. Um, and I think we're only going to see that continue. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that these venues for getting involved are really interesting and really good and sometimes like potentially weird. Like I do get a little nervous about, you know, the citizen sleuth trend of like, Yes. But but then, like, maybe it works and then it looks really great, but then you have stories of people, like, you know, putting forth these crazy conspiracy theories and just sort of messing with the case or messing with the victim's families. And totally. it's all kind of blurry to me. It It shouldn't be. It is, I guess, because it's newer, but there are rules. And, like, I think for people who really want to engage with it there there's there's parameters and one is like don't dox people don't harass a victim's family i mean anyone who's doing that to me is the same as an internet troll they're just doing it over here and this has like very serious consequences which you're talking about i think the more it's normalized and the more like leaders that show up on how to do it well which would include you know retired law enforcement or active law enforcement the better because then people will know like the proper way to to do this, um, like I'm thinking of the documentary Don't F With Cats, you know, and those citizen sleuths and their work really was helpful. And I interviewed a citizen detective who who was a research librarian. So granted, she had like a skill set, but she helped bring identities to two of the Bear Brook victims in that um, New Hampshire public radio podcast. Yeah, I mean, there's really no end to the possibility. So that's exciting to me. Um but I, but I totally hear you. It freaks me out too. And it's a big responsibility. And if people don't understand that and appreciate that nuance, then it could be very dangerous. But I hope the more we know, like the better we'll do. I also just thought of something that I think is happening in true crime, which is the expansion of the genre, especially post 2020. Like your book is going to be perfect time, perfectly timed because it's about scams and white collar crimes, which we've talked about. Like there's some darkness there and there's some sad psychological things going on with the people, but it is for all intents and purposes lighter. So I think white collar crime cults, those can get pretty dark. We both know Oh that. yeah. But they... just expanding the genre be- 
a, beyond murder, I should say. Right. I think we're, beyond I think serial that's, killers. Yes. I think yeah. that's going to be a trend. It already is. And I'm very interested in that. Um, I just listened to a podcast called I'm Not a Monster. Have you listened? No. BBC. <gasps> so Ooh. good. About a Midwestern mom who moves her children to <gasps> Syria because her husband becomes part of ISIS. And the whole <gasps> podcast is did she or didn't she know? I mean, that's not Whoa. a murder story, but it is like edge of the seat yeah. intrigue. So I think... That feeling is part of what we love about true crime too, the edge of your seat suspense. And there's a lot of ways to achieve that with nonfiction that right. aren't just murder. So right, we'll see right. more of that, I think, in 2021 yeah. and beyond because people are feeling a little weary. About just the murder after murder. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, especially after the year we've all just had. Exactly. So that exactly. makes a lot of sense. So at the end of each podcast episode, you ask your interviewees what is keeping them up at night and I'm curious if you've noticed any trends like are there things that are keeping most of us up at night other than the pandemic well I mean that kind of is the answer especially last year which is you know just happened and Mm -hmm. so the majority of the answers were pandemic Mm -hmm. when it was the election it was the election Mm -hmm. but really the state of the world and that is a broad answer, but a lot of people say, and it includes people talk about, you know, their kids' future and Mm. things are so uncertain, climate change. Um, You know, for any survivor I talk to or a victim, a family member of a victim, it's where is their loved one or will justice be served? I mean, these are not small things. Yeah. So what they reveal though, I think is like, we kind of all are kept up by similar things. I mean, We can't relate to, I can't relate to every guest's experience, but I I can be kept up by, you know, a haunting feeling or what Mm -hmm. is the state of the world? Will things ever be okay? Mm -hmm. Will I ever get justice? You know, and sometimes you get invested in a story of another person and their story can keep you up at night. So there are some very universal anxieties that mm-hmm. keep people up and certainly last year the pandemic was one yeah um it was it was hard and I hope it's okay to share this but I actually want to change my ending question it's been Ooh. like a year and a half of that question <laughs> I feel like yeah we need to switch gear and tone for a new season so I'm gonna put it out to my listeners and take suggestions so I'd love you Tori to hear yours and if your yes. listeners have idea the the concept is we we finish our talk and then I say at the close of an episode what is keeping you up at night but now I want to say something else I want to ask mm. something else so I'm open to suggestions and I want it to be something revealing and um it can be lighter it can be heavier I'm really open but I I'm kind of tired of asking the question and yeah. I think we've exhausted most answers so yeah, yeah. I love this time. for you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, a new refresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got to keep a, it interesting. Yeah, get out of the toxic job, refresh the right. question at the end of your podcast. <laughs> this is, it's 2021. Exactly. We're looking forward. Yes. My question will be, what bold, impulsive decision are you going to make at the end of our conversation? <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to quit before you thought you would? No, here's my real suggestion. For every guest, I think you should say, who do you think is Q of QAnon? <laughs> That's a and great question. And then make like a graph of that if any names emerge to the top. <laughs> it could be an informal study. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> the answers, can you even imagine? Yeah, I'm trying to think who people will say like Tom Hanks or no, Tom Hanks <laughs> is evil. 
According no, no, to yeah, he, he was, he's still leading the pedophile ring. He's too yeah, busy. I get confused about who is in and who is out. Um, yeah, I'll have to think about I it like more that. before I answer it for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll solve this one way or another. Who yes. is Q? Who is Q? Well, thank you, Rebecca. I'm so glad to have you on Criminal Broads. And everyone else, go check out her podcast. And I will be linking to everything in the show notes, obviously. Thank you, Tori. It was so much fun. Always. That's all for today, folks. If you liked hearing from Rebecca, don't forget to check out her podcast, Dialogue, which I will link to in the show notes. Also, I just realized the other day that all these links I've been putting in the show notes for ages now, they don't they, they, they don't turn into links. When, the, when you're in the show notes itself, you can't click on anything. So I don't know. I, my whole life is meaningless. Like, I've been putting my Patreon there, and I'm... Really happy that some of you have managed to find it anyway because it's not a freaking link in the show notes. There's nothing. You can't click on anything. So I guess that is why people put paste the long, ugly links in their show notes. Now I understand. Now I have figured it out. Um, speaking of Patreon, let me thank this week's patrons for making this whole shebang possible. I have a series of names that are like ambrosia on my tongue. I would like to thank Opal M.W., Karen F., Kate M., Lana B., and Regina L.B. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate your support. Anyone else? Um, I got a couple Patreon levels, a $1 level, a $3 level, if you want to go to patreon.com slash criminal broads to support the pod. Also, I have not forgotten that I promised you an interview with Jennifer Mee, the girl that the media termed Hiccup Girl back in 2007, and that is still happening. It's just, it's slow for a number of reasons. Um, You know, takes a while to talk, get in touch with incarcerated people and COVID and blah, 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 but it's still going to happen. I also might have another episode about Amy Bishop. No, I'm not interviewing Amy Bishop, but there's some news about her that I think you might be into. So I'm thinking about turning it into a full episode. I don't know. But do you like the idea of me every now and then popping in an episode that's like updates on previous episodes? Let me know on Instagram. Send me a message. Send me an email. Criminalbroads at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Okay. And last but not least guys we've been in the u.s for far too long we need to get out of here we this podcast used to go all around the world we used to explore we used to look at criminal broads and other cultures and now we've just stayed in the u.s and honestly let's be real we've mostly stayed in florida it's time to get out so for the next episode we are going overseas to india where we are going to look at a shocking crime that took a really long time to be solved, even though everyone knew who did it. Um, and, oh, I've got some exciting stuff coming down the pipeline for you, but that's all I'll say for now. All right, have a wonderful time. Get yourself, mm, I'm going to say get yourself an iced coffee this week unless it's unless it feels seasonally 
inappropriate. If it feels like you're sort of starting to get hopeful for spring and for, you know, vaccinations and like a vaguely post-pandemic future, then I want you to get yourself an iced coffee. If it just feels delusional and it'll actually make you feel really weird, don't do it. Stick to lattes, hot coffees, or cafe LA's. Okay, deal? All right. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.